In this edition of the Embedded Insiders, Brandon and Rich continue to probe the impact that COVID-19 is having on the electronics industry today and its implications for the future. They begin with a review of recent research published by ByteSnap titled Navigating COVID-19, The New Normal, which takes a snapshot survey of UK-based electronics professionals. Are the somewhat optimistic results of this survey indicative of the global tech sector? Later, Brandon and Rich are joined by Richard Barnett, CMO of SupplyFrame. His company's 2020 Trends in Electronic Sourcing report dives deep into the ways that COVID-19 has impacted the global supply chain and the ramifications that it has had on the engineering community. So what resource do organizations have to recover from and mitigate the risk of such phenomenon? According to Barnett, the answer lies in closer relationships between internal and external partners. Welcome to Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm here with Rich Nass, who is the Emir of Embedded. How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Today is my birthday, so I'm getting a lot of birthday. Whoa, 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 whoa. It was your birthday like three months ago. Happy to be your birthday again. You know, I actually have this friend who, back in college, we'd ask him to hang out all the time, and he, he really doesn't like saying no. So he'd tell us that it was his, it was his sister's birthday, like every month. <laughs> uh, use that as an excuse, but I wouldn't mind being the person who had a birthday every month because so far today's been a pretty good day. So if I had a birthday like this every day uh, or every month, uh, I'd be I'd be living on Easy Street. One of the things they start in our family is it's, it isn't a birthday; it's a birthday month. And right. On the first day of the month, they start to celebrate, and they they think like the whole month is their birthday. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting a little old now, so people won't let me get away with that. But I used to enjoy the, uh, you know, I have a birthday party on the weekend before, the weekend after, and then maybe um, at the start of the month, too. So we'll That's see. Cool to be officially in your 40s. Oh, uh, not in my 40s yet. My hair, <laughs> my, my hair is starting to act like it, but. <laughs> Very good. Well, um one of the things we should talk about is obviously is the pandemic that's what everybody talks about but um as you know i've been doing some of these special edition podcasts with uh ceos around the world to talk about how they're dealing with the pandemic from an engineering perspective you know i certainly don't want to talk about politics here um and shameless, shameless plug though this is embedded embedded executives podcast which you can subscribe to just like you subscribe to this podcast yes and it's actually not shameless it's pretty shameful but that's a different discussion um but anyway uh I, and I, I talked to people who, who are in some of the hot spots and the people who are not in some of the hot spots and it's interesting to hear the different perspectives like i spoke to um somebody in new york city and they are like right in the thick of it. And at the time, it was it was when it was really bad. And he was telling me that you you when you walk outside the office, which is in uh, Soho, you know, as bustling a neighborhood as you're going to find anywhere in the world, there was there was nobody on the street, and it was it was pretty eerie. And then I talked to somebody in the Seattle area, and I heard a lot of the same stuff. Um, but then I spoke to somebody who's out in rural Pennsylvania, and they were just following rules because they had to follow the rules, not because there was any issues going on there. So it's just been different all, all over the world. Um, what have you heard talking to people? Well, actually, when you, when you bring that up, it, it leads me back to a question that we sort of broached before um, on an earlier podcast, which is, 
just because engineers are working from home, does that mean that the engineering market is any different? We, there have been a bunch of surveys starting to come out uh, that you know, say some companies are just uh, business as usual. For example, uh, ByteSnap, uh, UK-based uh, embedded development firm, did a survey of partners, counterparts, et cetera. What they found was pretty typical, uh, 36%. Uh, expected drop in demand over the next 18 months, uh, 18% expect supply chain, dis supply chain disruption, um, which is something we're going to talk about in a minute, by the way, with our friend Richard Barnett from Supply Frame. But, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the, the results seem to be over the next 12-ish, 18-ish months, people are expecting there to be a little bit of a dip, but most are expecting to return to normal fewer than 25% from, from these findings think that, um, you know, because of COVID-19, they will have a recovery that takes longer uh, than two years or will never recover. And, and I think that that's probably consistent with what I've heard from people around the industry. You know, okay, we're going to have to weather the storm here a little bit for the rest of this year and maybe into 2021. But, you know, we'll, we'll get back there. There are exceptions in a couple of industries, but on the whole, um, you know, I think we're resilient. There will definitely be some places that never go back to the way it used to be, for sure. And and a lot of the work from home thing, I would, would definitely think has a lot to do with that. Um, if you can work from home, you know, if you, if you're renting valuable office space and and you and you just figured out that there's no need for that valuable office space. Why spend all that money? Yeah. You know, there is a lot to be said for being face-to-face, -face, especially when you're working in a team setting and being able to collaborate. But the almighty dollar does tend to um, overrule a lot of those things sometimes. By the way, I, have to, I do have to let you know that um, I will be working from home. And on my birthday, or my monthly birthdays, I'll have to take half days. <laughs> The insiders are now joined by Richard Barnett, CMO of SupplyFrame, who reviews the company's annual trends and electronic sourcing report. So let's cut to the chase. What did you What did you find at the highest level? Is it a oh crap moment? Uh, everybody <laughs> switch up your supply chain strategy and run for the hills, or you know, bring everything in house. Immediate short-term signals were quite interesting. One of the things that we watched almost in real time was how fast China recovered back to manufacturing capacity. So, you know, within, it was really about a, a 30 to 45 day cycle from shutdown, you know, in kind of, you know, late January, early February, you know, through end of March back to April, right? That, that cycle, you know, was definitely a huge impact on lead times and on availability of supply and inventory. But basically we got back to almost 95% manufacturing volumes across most major commodity group areas in China. Mm -hmm. And then what happened though, was that downstream, you saw both a, a near-term demand spike around things related to work from home, you know? So you had, I couldn't get a Logitech, you know, webcam to save my life, you know what I mean? And I had to get my our IT guy, you know, found one somewhere in the world, you know, even though it wasn't on Prize or Amazon or anywhere in the world. And I wasn't alone, you know, like, very sleepy steady state kind of accessory providers or, you know, simply like the major computer OEMs, you know, like Dell and Lenovo saw this massive spike uh, in demand. 
Um, but then obviously you had this, this uh, and you had an increase in uh, demand around related to edge computing, right? So anything that was supporting, you know, increased remote working, um, you know, scaling data center capacity for digital and online usage, that all happened immediately and was a totally unexpected demand spike. But then what we're also seeing is about a six to nine month uh, view downstream, a high degree of uncertainty related to demand, right? So some of these markets like in automotive are, you know, flat because there's been no new transactions, but there's probably a lot of pent up demand. So there will be a recovery that is expected to be fairly elastic. Um, in other cases, like in commercial airline industry and aerospace, that industry has been impacted, you know, in an incredibly uh, big way. And it's massively uncertain whether we'll ever get back, you know, in the near term in the next five to six years to the levels of, uh, you know, uh, you know, utilization of, you know, airline capacity that we saw before. So, um, you know, there's a high degree of uncertainty and that definitely was revealed in the, in the survey. But, you know, the immediate kind of impact questions that we looked at was, hey, you know, what, what do you see happening immediately? And across the board, what we saw was that 53% said that product launches have been delayed or canceled. 37% uh, unable to fulfill customer orders. 37% increase in component costs. And 35%, I thought this was really interesting, um, we're having to rework existing products on the market, like the, the design to find alternate parts and suppliers for already launched products. And you don't really see that, particularly at 30% plus, for that scope of product volume. So, you know, I think if you add it all up, it's an amazing story in spite of itself of resiliency. Do you know what I mean? Because, right. you know, it's it's kind of amazing how, how rapidly every tier within the supply chain tried to, you know, recover and or get, you know, creative around how to respond. But it did expose, you know, like falling waters expose the rocks, you know what I mean? That expression, right? They're in the way. It absolutely shined a spotlight on deeper uh, challenges around what we looked at here was the collaboration between engineering and sourcing managers around electronic components. So really looking at what's happening in new product introduction and design decisions, you know, what's happening with these supporting systems, you know, what are the takeaways? One of the things you said that interests me, you said that there was a spike in prices. Now it's one thing to tell your customers that they have to wait for a product, but it's something else to say, well, you got to wait a little while, oh, and, it, and it's going to cost you 30% more. That's isn't usually something that's absorbed. It, we, you had both things happen, right? You know, it's some, you know, we saw this with retaliatory tariffs between China and uh, the United States, right? In electronics components, right? That's where we saw this sort of very interesting shift of behaviors, right? Where, um, you know, certain industries because their product margins were able to absorb a 10 to 15% component price increase in other industries that are super narrow margins immediately had to pass those cost increases on to their customers. And they're in industries which have typically had historically a kind of ever falling or really static price curve because they're so competitive, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in this, in, this, in this instance, what you saw was either orders being canceled or uh, I wouldn't say like price gouging, but definitely price elasticity and or reshifting allocation of capacity to new market segments. Um, you know, it was definitely all of that was going on, you know, and I think we've restabilized to a large degree, but I think what's happening is, again, around this downstream uncertainty, you know, some drivers around general demand are going to be very stable because there's so 
much invested in them, like the 5G network rollout. You know, that's that's not going to massively get displaced. But mobile phone launches, even though Apple and Tim Cook were very proudly going on the record of we will not delay, we're good. Well, now it's unclear, right? Because, you know, if people are working from home, if consumers are not, you know, they're still focused on essentials and not focused on, you know, luxury good items or, or things that could put off, there will be key launch cycles that will be delayed and, you know, really to optimize demand and to make sure they don't lose uh, margin by having a really extended product uh, life cycle. You mentioned the fact, obviously, this research is about uh, the relationship between procurement and engineering. Um, how would a closer relationship between those two groups or business units or, or whatever entities yeah. um, in a normal situation be helpful? Um, and then let's look at what sort of risk could have been mitigated in a situation like this. Obviously, in a situation like this, not everything could be mitigated. But you know, what, what's, the, what's the benefit of having those two groups working more closely together? Well, it was interesting because the survey really identified that uh, there's a strong desire for increased collaboration from both sides, from like the sourcing procurement organization, as well as new product, uh, like product operations and engineering teams that are in these cross-functional new product introduction teams. Um, you know, 85% of survey respondents says they can't, you know, source components effectively and 95% agree that it involves integration of sourcing, engineering, and then supply partners or contract manufacturing. So, you know, what we've seen is if you take kind of a longer view, there's been a massive adoption of digital transformation initiatives in supply chain. Uh, and many companies are actually on their second or third big initiative, you know what I mean, in supply chain, whether that's related to you know, re redesigning their networks for fulfillment because of competition with Amazon, or, you know, it's redesigning, you know, new planning algorithms, you know, that are doing demand sensing, et cetera. I mean, really interesting, both technology innovation, process change, et cetera. But if you just go just to the left of that supply chain organization, and you look at the direct material sourcing teams, they've kind of been left behind. They've been told to be in like a straitjacket, you know, like go chase cost takedown this quarter and go chase parts that are short. You know, they haven't been allowed to really think outside that constraint, very short term, almost tactical, right? And then, and then also interestingly, is you had this kind of rise of product lifecycle management, PLM systems, but the original mission of product lifecycle management, when it was really, that term was coined in 2002, and its mission and vision was to disseminate and manage product information across the extended enterprise to make optimal choices to manage the life cycle of a product from design through market to end of life. And what happened is that vision has not been fulfilled. It's, it's kind of stopped, you know, at really great CAD design, et cetera, and releasing that design bomb out. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as it's released into this cross-functional new product introduction process, the systems and tools that these teams are using are like Excel spreadsheets that have 4,000 lines and 100 tabs, you know, on them. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's some basic, you know, check-in, check-out, uh, you know, from Box or Dropbox or a, a data store of some form. It's, it's sending emails around, like, go research this part, you know, to an engineer or to a sourcing manager. It's a mess. But the decisions that are made in the MPI process generally lock in the 80 to 60%, let's say, of the life cycle cost and risk of that product. So these two groups have been left behind, you know what I mean, from digital innovation. So 
we really wanted to explore this further. And what the research showed was that, you know, it's all about providing greater intelligence, greater collaboration, and improved trade-off decision-making together. That's what right. it's really all about. 20 years worth of, of this PLM segment, you know, you've got some pretty big companies uh, either backing or producing uh, PLM solutions. Why haven't they evolved more effectively to cover beyond just the supply chain over to sourcing right. and over into engineering? What's, what's the deal? Well, I think it's, it's actually kind of a, a broader trend across other enterprise systems in which you can see like ERP systems were, were designed to, you know, standardize process automation and financial transactions. They were not built from a data representation to represent the supply chain, the world out there. Everybody has their own, everybody has their own tool for their right. own thing, right? Right, of the, right. Uh, the data, right? PLM kind of developed in a similar way. Very good at managing different kinds of bill material structures and, and you know, um, kind of parametric data that relates to design, you know, attributes, right, to a, to a bomb, and, you know, and mostly optimized around form fit function. And then what happened over time was there was these product or part component libraries that were used to sort of be references. So if I pull a part, you know, ID or number in, I can pull some of that standard attribute data, you know, into my design. Um, the problem is, is that those systems were not made to be always updated with real-time market intelligence and outside-in perspective, similarly to ERP systems, right? So the challenge is, is that we have to enrich and add in information that's available now, right? We've seen this explosion of new data sources that have emerged. So if you can inject that into the MPI process, a couple of things happen. One is the bill of material accuracy gets really, you know, massively improved because in this COVID moment, one of the things that you saw was everyone not, uh, you know, um, resting on their laurels or assuming that the assumptions they made around those parts and those suppliers that they used nine months ago in the last product version are good and are good anymore, right? You know, you, you got to recheck all your assumptions. We don't know if there's available supply. We don't know if that suppliers, you know, like, you know, manufacturing plants are down, you know, everything had to be rethought through. But the second thing is, is there's this, you know, different industries have evolved their MPI phase gate review process methodology in different ways. Highly regulated industries, generally speaking, like medical devices and aerospace, even automotive, have this, I would say, almost overly bureaucratic focus around quality and statistical process control, et cetera, right? And it kind of weaves its way into the MPI validation process, right? Because they have to do regulatory requirement and compliance, material compliance, you know, ITAR compliance, whatever, as part of that process. In other industries, just like generally high-tech OEMs, it's, um, you know, it's pretty well defined, but generally the pattern is the same, where you do bomb validation, and then you're, you're going to look at some assumptions around target costing, right, and understand the cost implications of the decisions. And then you're going to maybe do some design for manufacturing and then release internal manufacturing or to a third party to assemble. But what's been missing is the intelligence around the trade-off between cost and risk. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big themes that you're seeing with, you know, kind of, you know, supply chain leaders, sourcing leaders, product operation leaders coming out of COVID is, there's a shift from focusing too much on cost efficiency to more of a balanced model around resiliency. And, and you know, there's, a, there's, there's a way to understand what the cost or the premium of resiliency is in the design phase. You can look at, for example, 
instead of selecting one supplier and one part, you can pre-select and pre-qualify two alternate suppliers and three alternate parts of the same form fit function. You know, into There's the a pretty design. good reason for that. I mean, it isn't just, not just doing that because it's fun. You know, right. it's, it's obvious why that they want to do that. Totally, right? But before, you know, you'd have this classic push-pull dynamic where engineering's like, no, I really like this supplier. I really, I really trust, you know, the quality of their designs. You know, these are my preferred. And the sourcing procurement teams like either don't have a voice at the table or they're just not involved, right? So certain things get locked in and then they're having to pick up what the implications of that are. There's, you know, that doesn't work anymore. You know, teams need to come together and make these straight off decisions together with a lot more intelligence. And, um, you know, and, and the idea is to, to help kind of design in resiliency at the MPI phase, right? Which is really a critical uh, opportunity that we see for a lot of companies to really say, look, no, let's go fund a transformation initiative. Let's really go relook at how we're doing this, you know, in the end, let's improve participation, right, of key stakeholders. Let's let's look at the information systems and intelligence that we're that we're using. Uh, you know, and let's build some some different performance goals around risk grading these bills of materials and these products to focus a lot more on resiliency versus just minimally meet, meet, meeting the functional design or the market design that was required at, you know, at the kind of concept level. So you know, is there any, is there anybody out there, some white knight that's going to come in and save some of these organizations or is this, is it on them to build out these practices and these sort of initiatives on their own? I mean, I think that there is a special moment right now because you've got greater sea level alignment and focus on this issue than like really ever before. I mean, if you think about, you know, who owns this challenge, everybody owns this challenge. You know, um, you know, C CFOs, CEOs are looking for product growth. CFOs are focusing on how to protect product margins, not because they don't know their demand assumptions, right? Like right. the forward looking guidance to the market is kind of out the window, you know what I mean? So what they're really looking at is how do we protect product margins and profitability, even if we can't hit our volume goals, right? Um, you've got chief supply chain officers that have been scrambling in war room environments. And interestingly enough, more often than not, these new product introduction cross-functional teams are actually housed within the global supply chain organization because there's no other place to put it. You know what I mean? Right. They're not just in engineering. They're not just in procurement and sourcing, but they're kind of like orphan child, you know, or children, right? You know, they're like, kind of a special operations team, you know, it's really smart, savvy senior folks that are being crippled by, you know, inadequate systems and, uh, and information sharing. So, you know, now's the time for leaders to say, look, you know, let's take a moment here and go solve this problem at root uh, because everyone should have buy-in and acceptance of that. Um, I, think, I think the other, you know, opportunity for a lot of companies is uh, to, you know, leverage voice of their customer, their in customer to actually drive some of the prioritization for why they need to build more resilient products, because those, those touch points have never been more clear. Um, you know, but it's totally doable. I mean, one of the things that we did, Supply Frame has a group um, called Design Lab, and it actually supports, uh, you know, early stage uh, entrepreneurs that have like an interesting concept to kind of go through rapid prototyping in the lab and, you know, prove out a key concept and we'll actually go do electronic build and we'll, you know, we'll actually use our solutions to optimize kind of this, this build material design. Um, one of our lead hardware engineers uh, was asked to partner with JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Labs, you know, as part of NASA in Pasadena, where, where our headquarters are. 
and because they they wanted to take on the challenge of designing a new ventilator uh, that could be open sourced and delivered uh, for wide adoption for anyone in the world. I mean, I don't know if you guys were tracking like certain companies like Medtronic and others yeah. were releasing patents for designs that were eight, nine years old, right? It's like, okay, that's that's helpful to a point, but none of the products and components that were in that design nine years ago are relevant today, right? So it's like, you can't just take that design, you know, if you're in, pick a country, you know what I mean? Like you, if, you, if you want to pick up and then quickly assemble uh, something for your local market, your state, your region, et cetera, to address the issue. And the GPL folks knew that. Um, so they kind of took, a variation of, of design elements quickly built out the mechanicals, et cetera. But you know, the gotcha, the bottleneck for them to go rapidly build out 400 new units, which was their goal, um, was the electronic uh, board design. So you have like airflow sensors that, you know, Honeywell was producing, you know, 5,000 of them a year because net new production volumes of ventilators before COVID was right. super boring. I mean, it was like, whatever X percent per month, you know, steady Eddie, uh, no longer, right? And so what Erica did from Supply Lab is she used all of our intelligence to actually go in that design and completely de-risk it. She, everywhere she could, she chose a part, an alternate part for, for one of the parts that was specified. She tried to find an equivalent part and re-qualify it, even if it wasn't the exact form fit function to the bomb, the initial bomb they were playing with outside of the medical device industry. So it wouldn't be under huge capacity constraints in general. And then try to have at least two to three alternate suppliers for every level of the bill of material. So what JPL did is they produced 400 of these units, uh, went from concept to, to done in 37 days, and then pushed the open source design. But really importantly, that design is able to be sourced without any constraints from day one anywhere in the world. You know, and that's what, that's the new mindset that these teams need to have. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just status quo, you know, good enough is no longer good enough. So commoditize everything is what you're saying. Well, it's a good point though, because you can only do this in kind of your, generally your standard parts and components, right? You'll, you'll obviously will have maybe custom electromechanical, you know, or certain packaging design, et cetera, that'll be a part of a full, full bomb assembly. But what we're increasingly seeing is the gotchas is not in that one or two dedicated suppliers that you have a super close relationship with who've dedicated capacity, it's actually in that long tail. You know, we saw with like MLCCs, you know, uh, you know, going through this massive demand spike in passives uh, that caught everyone off guard, you know what I mean? Because this is stuff that's like 0.01 cents or 0.003 cents per piece part that no one thought they would ever run out of, you know? And then you saw these massive allocation challenges as things got smaller and smaller you know, and, uh, and it's 100x utilization for 5G phones versus 4G phones. You know, this is the gotcha now in the global electronics value chain is it's just there's the, all these new sources of complexity and risk and volatility. And you just can't rest on your laurels. You know what I mean? It's like it's, it's just a, it's a VUCA world. You know what I mean? We just we got to anticipate that there's, uh, you know, managing this risk is really a key part of what everyone needs to do. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily industry news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com.